guys, welcome back to Let's Talk Trafficking. My name is Sriya. My name is Ashna. And my name is Sneha. Today we're doing an episode that is the first of our human trafficking episodes. We just wrapped up our mental health series and we had quite a break, but now we're hopping back into it. Today we're going to be going over a couple human trafficking cases. These are all posted on our Instagram if you guys would like to check them out and look more in depth about the cases, but we're going over four. These include labor trafficking, sex trafficking, and organ trafficking cases. Um, So stay tuned and we'll get started. So I'm gonna start off with the first one that's sex trafficking and I'm just gonna read a little bit about it and then we're all gonna talk about it. So this is a sex trafficking case about a girl named Carla and she had been mistreated for four years. So this reads, at 12 years of age, Carla was mistreated by a man 10 years older than her. She was lured from poverty by a man who deceived her with gifts and a story. He told her that he had a car salesman and was abused as a young child, making her feel for him. She said that she perceived him to be very affectionate and a quiet gentleman at the time. A week later, he called Carla to go on a trip with him, and she agreed under the excitement of his generosity. From then on, she saw mixed signs from him. Carla was constantly treated with gifts, but he also left her by herself for a week at a time in their apartment. His cousins showed up at their apartment every week with new girls, and she was told that they're pimps when she asked him what business they're in. Ever since she realized they were pimps, her life had changed completely. Soon after, he told her when to meet clients, for how long and how much she should charge them. She was instructed on how to talk to them so they would give her more money. Her life as a victim included her being taken to Mexico to work as a prostitute. For four years, she started at 10 a.m. and finished at midnight. She saw at least 30 clients daily for seven days a week. One day while she was working at a hotel for prostitution, the police arrived. The clients were taken away and the hotel was shut down. However, just as Carla thought it was her lucky day, she soon found the police threatening her and the other girls working as prostitutes in the hotel. Carla was videoed and told that it would be sent to her family if she did not comply with everything the police asked her. Carla was rescued in 2008 at the age of 16 during an anti-trafficking operation in Mexico. She is currently 23 years old and is an advocate against trafficking. In fact, her testimony was used as evidence for the establishment of Megan's Law that mandates U.S. authorities to share information about American child sex offenders when convicts attempt to travel abroad. So that's her story, and we're just going to talk about it now. I think it's just crazy that the police were actually threatening these girls. And as you can see that some of the prostitutes like Carla had a background in which they were groomed and forced to take the position that they are in today. And they weren't even rescued until 2008, which is way later in her life. Yeah, it's kind of shocking to me that the police would walk in on girls as young as like since she was rescued at 16, probably a lot younger than that, and assumed that they were at fault when there were obviously much older men in the hotel who were more likely in charge of grooming them or 
taking advantage of them. Yeah, the amount of control over these girls is just insane. Um, A huge thing for me was how she saw 30 clients daily. I think that itself, like the number speaks so much. 30 clients daily is the equivalent of her being fully mistreated 30 times every single day, every day of the week, which I think as a 12-year-old, because this has been happening for four years, she hardly even has the maturity, the experience in this world to even face small challenges out there. And to be violated like that on such an intimate level is just I think it takes a lot from a person and it just changes you forever. I think even as an adult, she's going to look back on that. And it's a part of her childhood that's been traumatized. And she kind of just has to recover from that, which I think is really hard. Yeah, and I think it's also really unfortunate that the people who are most vulnerable for these things usually do come from places of poverty because she was 12 when this started happening and he was 22. And the way that she was lured was largely because she had no money and she was showered with all these gifts and like material possessions that were very appealing to her because of that. And so I think a big part of this trafficking in general that we have to kind of identify is these types of signals like somebody kind of showering a younger girl with gifts that could indicate some danger in the future. Yeah, and this is why like educating, especially like preteens is so important, Mm -hmm. I think, because like I said, they're in a stage where like most preteens, middle school, like they hardly know the real world. Like even, I, I would even say like 18, you're an adult, but you don't really know the real world until you actually have numerous experiences that have shaped who you are. And at that age, you go to school, you kind of live your life. There's not much to it. So you don't know much. And being taken advantage on that level is just so outside of the realm of anything you could even grasp at that age. And it's essentially ruining a person when you do that. And trafficking in general can be dangerous. But when it's for these small boys and girls, it can be so mentally taxing for these children and for their families because they go back to their families and no matter how much their parents can do to try to help their recovery it's really difficult because this kind of shapes how they're going to grow from now on because they've been set back so much and traumatized so much this is like their starting point for growth when all other kids are like going into their high school years are experiencing new things. These are the traumas and the stories that these kids have to carry with them. Yeah, I honestly think that preteens and like younger adults don't even understand the concept of human trafficking and that it's a real thing because of the innocence they possess. So when it is happening to them, they probably don't recognize the signs, which is like we've said, it's really important that we try to spread awareness and educate those around us. And I think another big aspect of spreading awareness and education is the way that media outlets and TV shows and any type of drama kind of um, portrays human trafficking. Because something I've noticed a lot recently is how different kinds of TV shows make it seem like trafficking cannot occur in 
more wealthy areas or cannot occur in safer areas or like can't occur in first world countries and a lot of the tv shows i've watched when they have anything to do with human trafficking any type of crime well it's always targeting targeting a very unrealistic demographic it's always a combination of kidnappings and like very poor areas and it makes a lot of people think that trafficking can't occur to them just and makes them feel like they live in this bubble and so while i think it's really important that while we help educate preteens and younger children it's equally as important to kind of change the perception that other larger platforms are giving on trafficking because the more they advocate and say and give examples of trafficking to occur in third world countries with kidnappings and really poor people the less people are going to believe that it's a real problem that needs a solution I agree because I know living in a suburban neighborhood right now, feeling really sheltered from the outside world, is kind of not all of the truth because even now my dad keeps telling me about how unsafe it is, even if you just go like a mile out and how there's still like real stuff happening even in our own city, which is generally, um, I would say it's relatively safe. Yeah, which is relatively safe. Mm -hmm. But if you actually just look at the news reports that do pop up, it is really daunting and scary about what happens to people even our age and a little older. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't even think it's about like being a woman or anything. But Mm -hmm. like if it's nighttime, even I like I take out my AirPods, walk to the car because I'm I don't want to be distracted. Right. Right. So it's small things like that. So I definitely agree. Okay, so moving into another human trafficking case that's a little bit different because it's going to be more about forced labor and this one specifically happens in China. So I'm just going to read a little description of the case and then we'll probably just talk about it again like we did last time. So this case is about is about a woman named Kong Nu from a village in China. She came from a very impoverished state in Myanmar and there were very few job opportunities for her there. So she was offered a job to work in a Chinese factory and obviously accepted it because of her eagerness to change her lifestyle. But after she arrived at the factory, it became obvious that she had been deceived when she found out that she was going to be trafficked to birth babies. So this type of trafficking accounts for 25% of the trafficking of women in this part of China. The traffickers would give the women pills and inject them with sperm so that they could carry babies for Chinese men. And this would be in exchange for money, about like $600. So she recalls being beaten and bullied if any resistance or hesitation was visible. From then else, she can also remember that the factory held 40 other women from ages as young as 16. For her case specifically, she managed to send messages to her family at home which allowed the community leaders to arrest the trafficking broker or the person who manages the entire operation. Because they would not disclose her location, her family gathered money from the neighbors to pay ransom for her return. She was also able to provide names of others in the factory and five were brought home as well. Now, Kong Nu is working towards a brighter future with the help of the UN Women and the Gender and Development Foundation. I think in 
both of these cases so far, it's important to identify the socioeconomic status of the individuals and how that can affect um, the vulnerabilities that they display and how they're maybe more easily taken advantage of in traffic. And I feel like that's a real world problem that needs to change as well, something to fix that, maybe provide more education or resources to those in low-income statuses. Make it, like, harder for people to get so desperate that they end up falling for these types of scams. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't be that easy. It shouldn't occur, like, affect that many people or make it a problem for as many people as it is. Yeah. I can't believe this type of trafficking accounts for 20% of trafficking women. Imagine the effects of that having to birth that many or however many babies they have to. Yeah, like the actual physical Yeah, the actual health. Like, there's a reason that, that, like, places with birth rates that are, like, a lot higher have a higher mortality rate for females. I think it's important to stress, especially in this case and, like, labor trafficking cases, how much those who are like involved in this industry and in this part of trafficking become like assets, like they're no longer humans in the industry. And I think that's why it's so important that the fight around trafficking needs to continue because it's technically it's not right at all that we are treated like this. We're human and we deserve to be treated as if we deserve a life and not mm-hmm. as if we owe something to the lives around us. Mm-hmm. I, I think especially for this woman to have been carrying, like basically carrying the lives of all of these other people through the obligation of helping them just because she is in such a low place that she has to do this out of obligation is it's it's just so wrong and especially doing this for money involved it creates a lot of bad incentives for her because it almost incentivizes her to stay because it's not like she's making low amounts this does give you a lot of money mm-hmm. so when you're in the situation where you're like aware that it's wrong because this woman is old enough she's not a child when you're aware that this is wrong but you also do not have a substantial life if you were to leave. It puts you in this place, like this gray area where you don't know what to do and the best option is to stay. And we've talked to other activists about this too. This kind of uh, situation makes rehabilitation really complicated because a lot of victims end up, I guess, blaming themselves and feeling like they chose to stay or they had an option And in reality, while it might seem like they had an option, they actually didn't because they were basically being physically forced to stay in one location and being given money and being manipulated into thinking in a specific way. So it's almost as if the victims are telling themselves that they have a choice, but in reality, that's not the case, which makes it really difficult once they're out of it to kind of adjust and understand exactly what happened. I think it's especially in developing countries such as China where the resources are more limited. Like as we can see, the rescue portion of Kongnu is very evident because 
she did manage to send out a message to her family. And instead of like officials coming in and closing the entire organization like they would if it was a high and wealthy status individual where, where they would provide more resources to rescue them. Instead, her family still had to pay the ransom to actually get her back, even when she like informed them and they informed authorities. I think that just shows how like your status is like evident and how society plays out and how you're treated. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this next case study is the sex trafficking of a minor. Her name is Maria, and she was a 15-year-old girl who lived in Latin America, supporting her family by selling bread. She often talked to this older woman, which she eventually entrusted, and her name is Sophia, to pass the time when business was slow. One day, Sophia promised Maria a high-paying job if she came with her without informing her parents. She obliged, and on the day of the trip, she was basically drugged, and she had joined a sex trafficking ring without her consent. When she woke up, she was raped in a taxi, and she was forced to work as a waitress for a month, and when Sophia returned, she claimed to be her mom, took all of her money, and relocated her. The cycle continued to repeat, and it involved sex with customers and other forms of manipulation and exploitation. She worked at numerous restaurants and dancing parlors over the course of her youth. Mario was eventually rescued in an especially unique circumstance when her uncle visited a dancing parlor and recognized her. Her parents were immediately contacted and Sophia was sentenced to 10 years in jail along with $250 restitution. However, the taxi driver wasn't convicted because of contradicting statements between Maria and Sophia. Although she was rescued, Maria did not get the justice she deserved, and many victims continued to fight as she did for justice. I think another really important aspect of this case to identify is that it's generally very uncommon for human trafficking to occur in this manner. And that's because she, while she obliged to go on the trip, she was given a drink that made her dizzy and unconscious. And that's what kind of led into the next series of events. That is actually very rare because more often times than not, trafficking will occur in instances where the person is knows what's happening but is simply getting manipulated by the events. So, um, an example would be a girl and her boyfriend going down or driving far away, and the girl getting convinced to um, pick up a job as a prostitute or pick up a job that could involve any type of acts that she might not want to do. This is very different because Maria is actually unconscious. So I think it's also really important to keep in mind that cases like this don't aren't the most regular, I guess, and that trafficking can occur in so many different ways that you can't really expect it or only have red flags in your head for one way or another. Yeah, and like in terms of awareness purposes, it's important to keep in mind that, like, like Ashna was saying, kidnapping cases are rare. So, like, a random person you know, like, involving you into human trafficking is more rare 
and more times like often than not it would be like a trusted person in your life who gets you so invested in the idea of something that is completely not what it is it's more likely that someone you know and trust is who lures you into trafficking just because they have the power to at least influence you in any certain personal way because they are already involved in your life. So it's easier for that to happen than a random stranger on the street influencing you. Though it does happen, and it's a good thing to look out for. And with that, we're going to end off with a quote. Tough times never last, but tough people do. By Robert H. Schuller. And the National Human Trafficking Hotline is 1-888-373-7888. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Trafficking. Make sure to stay tuned with our Instagram. It is at Let's Talk Trafficking, and we will be more consistent with our episodes, so be looking for that. We'll see you guys in the next one.